0: The Paul Leslie Hour. Helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Bill Shapiro is joining us. He's a best-selling author and editor. The former editor-in-chief of Life Magazine. He went on to be the founding editor-in-chief of Life.com. He won the 2011 National Magazine Award for Digital Photography. His most recent work is a book that he co-wrote with Naomi Wax, and it's entitled, What We Keep, 150 People Share the One Object That Brings Them Joy, Magic, and Meaning. And that book is out now. So Bill Shapiro, good to have you with us. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It was my honor. So what inspired the idea for this book?
1: So Naomi Wax, my co-author and I were were driving around, just sort of tootling around, and we came across a, you know, a garage sale. And we were going through the the junk, frankly, and we found this beautiful old locket, you know, from over a hundred years ago with this beautiful inscription, My Love Forever. And it just struck us as we started looking at this thing, how did this much loved important object wind up for sale to strangers you know in a yard sale and that that was sort of the thing that started us thinking about the objects that we keep and also the objects that at some point we lose track of or move away from us somehow so it started with that it also you know there were some other threads that work into an idea like this like when you when you see Photos of Syrian refugees, for example, with just a tiny little sack that they're carrying. And you wonder what they put in this that to remember their home by and they may never return to. So sort of this, this idea of the importance of objects in our life was something we started to talk about.
0: Now, when I think about, okay, what's the the object in my life that means the most to me? It's not something that comes to mind right away for me. Did most people know exactly what their object was?
1: Um, that's a great question. I'd say it was split about 75, 25 twenty-five. Seventy-five percent knew it exactly right away. Oh yes, I know what you're talking about. You know, it's 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 this rabbit's foot. It's this key from a motel. It's it's a book. But then there were those people who needed some time to sort of ponder. And think about, of the of the things they have, what sort of rises to the surface, what has the most meaning. So, yeah, both reactions. And how did you find
0: the people who make up the stories in this book?
1: So that's a great question. We started off by using our own network, friends of friends of friends, you know, calling people, do you know anybody who who has an object that's meaningful to them? And then we started thinking about people who, because of their job or their vocation or their circumstances, might have an interesting relationship with an object. So, for example, what about an astronaut? You know, what would an astronaut bring with him or her on on a voyage to space? How about somebody who's, you know, been in prison for decades? What's the most important thing to them? you know what about a cloistered nun what about a counterfeiter who makes fake things and so we started thinking about people like that and and then we went out and we found them you know we just did old fashioned reporting and found people who uh kind of fit the bill and who had interesting interesting things insightful things to say and then you know we also went out and thought about who were some of the most interesting people today who who people would Really want to sort of get close to and hear about the interesting object in their life, you know. So people like the writer Cheryl Strayed, people like the comedian Hasan Minhaj, the entrepreneur Mark uh, Cuban. So we we then track down people like that and and ask them about their most prized possession.
0: As you just mentioned, there are a few very well known people in here. I was looking at the Facebook page for this book, which everybody can check that out. Again, the title of the book, What We Keep, 150 People Share the One Object That Brings Them Joy, Magic, and Meaning. And it really caught my eye that you had Melinda Gates in this book. And I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about her story in the book.
1: Absolutely. So um, what what I love about Melinda Gates and her story is that her object was app, was actually an Apple III computer. So, you know, Apple was sort of at war with Microsoft for years and years and years. And so the fact that she chose an Apple III computer is interesting kind of in its own right. But her father basically brought home an Apple III computer in the early 80s when when Gates was, I think, you know, 14, 15, 16, and she immediately took to it, she kind of took it from the family room up to her room and started learning how to code, teaching herself how to code and play and play video games and all that kind of stuff. You know, that was obviously pre-internet, so she was teaching herself quite well. And what was great, so great about that story and what and what Melinda Gates says about the object is that she had her father's full support as a teenage girl in the 80s to be up in your room, you know, learning how to code was not typical behavior, perhaps. And the fact that her father supported her so passionately and so strongly in that regard had huge meaning for her. And that's really, that was at the heart of her story. You know, more than the computer itself, it was the support and love of her father and kind of the dividends that that paid for her personally. Mm -hmm.
0: That is so cool.
1: I'm I'm really curious also,
0: it's very interesting, you have the head of the Library of Congress as one of the stories. Tell us a little bit about that. That's interesting.
1: Well, you know, when we were talking about a moment ago, people in sort of extraordinary circumstances or jobs that might have an interesting relationship to their object, you know, we thought about the Library of Congress, which, which obviously has millions and millions of of miles, <laughs> you know, of books and recordings and maps and and everything under the sun. And so we wondered for somebody who oversees the Library of Congress, what would their single most important object be? And so we got the head of the Library of Congress on the phone and and her name is Carla Hayden, wonderful wonderful person, and she told us what hers was, which was this little ceramic cup that her mother had given to her when she was a child miss hayden is african american and her mother painted this little ceramic cup that had her that had a face on it she painted it brown so that it looked like her and that had so much meaning not only that her mother gave this to her but that this was the first thing she had in the 50s that actually looked like her and it went on you know not only was it her favorite cup when she was a little girl but, you know, over the years when she was in, went to elementary school, it became her favorite pencil holder. And now it holds her makeup brushes and whatnot. She still has it on on her dresser at home. And I thought that was a really beautiful story. Very
0: beautiful. Wow. Now, would you say that that was the most touching story
1: that you had in the book? Well, I think that sort of depends well, it, it, it sort of depends, you know, where, where you're coming from, but also on any different, on, on any given day, there are stories that I think are, are equally touching. You know, in this book, what we tried to do was find that story that really captures a super influential moment in a person's life, whether the object came from somebody they loved or somebody they sort of aspired to be, or the a moment of great turmoil or transition, those moments carry a lot of sort of emotional weight and gravitas. And so there are a lot of stories that have that kind of deep emotion. You know, there's there, there's, there's another one about a, a boy who's, whose father couldn't really be bothered with him too much. He was always busy doing other stuff, except when he started woodworking, which was something his father could kind of get behind. And the two of them made this table together and won the, uh, the championship in a small town in uh, Kentucky. And that was a big deal for this, you know, this boy says, this boy who's now a retired corporate executive. So, you know, 70 years later says, I've never felt closer to my father during the time than during the times we were sanding down this, this uh, table. And, and that was pretty moving. Wow. Well. What about a most surprising story from this book? Well, that's a great question. I'd say that a story surprised me when it had never been told before. So there's the, you know, there's the, the author Cheryl Strayed who wrote the book Wild, of which the movie was made. And she's, you know, she's, she's a really authentic, honest, open person. And when I spoke with her, she told me about an object that still remains in her life and in, in, in her bedroom on a shelf that she never even told the story to her husband of 20 years about. And so the fact that that was, this was such an integral part of her and captured sort of who she was and who she wanted to be. And yet she'd kept it so close to herself. Uh, you know, I found that really surprising for her. It happened to be this strange sort of exotic shell with a pin cushion in it. And it's sort of, you know, she wanted to be the kind of girl when she was five or six years old who found an exotic shell like that on the beach. And it had a lot of meaning for her. You know, there's another story where there's the most mundane bottle opener you've ever seen in your life. It looks like, you know, you can find it at any sort of five and dime. But the story behind it is kind of amazing because it was given to this, this guy who we interviewed by his grandmother and his, his grandmother years before was a sort of buttoned up CPA by night living in San Francisco area, you know, with, with her hair in a bun and very conservative. But that was a front at night. Uh, <laughs> she was the biggest marijuana importer in the state. <laughs> and so the fact that she gave this bottle opener, for him, that, that holds that whole story in this bottle opener for him and his relationship with her and what she was trying to do as a as a pot importer in the 60s and 70s.
0: Now, I found out about this book, What We Keep, through Renee Langvard, who is one of the stories in the book. And yes. I'm hoping you can tell us about your your trip through Kansas and how that particular page in the book came to be.
1: So when you asked me earlier how we found some of these stories, uh, and I told you some of the ways, what I, what I didn't mention was that we also went on some, some sort of road trips. I live in Brooklyn, New York. And so Naomi and I flew to Omaha, Nebraska for one of these trips and drove around the Great Plains. Uh, we drove around to you know, small towns and medium towns and places that you know, we, we normally wouldn't, wouldn't go to, that weren't really in our circle. And on one of those trips, we happened to drive through a town called Clay Center, Kansas. And I needed some coffee. We parked. There was a a, a a cafe that looked terrific. And so we walked in and we started speaking with the woman who was behind the counter, who owned the shop. And we kind of hit it off, and we were just having a nice conversation. And we got our coffee, and we and we left. And then we came. I talked to Naomi. We went back in, and we said, you know. We're doing this book about objects. You seem so great. Would you talk to us? And we just hit it off, and she started telling us this amazing story about her most precious object. Wow. And and I can t- I can tell you the story about that object too, if you. Yeah, if let's hear it. Like. Yeah. So so when Renee was in high school, she went on a trip to Siberia and while she was there walking down the street one day she bought these russian uh, nesting dolls you know when you have like a there's like a woman on the front and they're uh, intricately painted and one fits inside of another fits inside of another fits inside of another and she 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 bought that and on that trip she had sort of an epiphany about How important love was and how she realized that all these people on the streets in this very far off place, you know, in, I'll probably pronounce it wrong, but Nova Beerstick or something like that, Siberia, that all these people, no matter where they are in the world, they need love. And, you know, she thought about the grace that had been shown to her and it was something she wanted to pass on to others. And, that moment gave her purpose, gave her life some purpose. And somehow these Russian nesting dolls that fit inside of each other gave her a sense of how her life fit together. And I thought that was a really beautiful thing to say. And that's, and that's why it ended up in the, uh, in the book. Great. Could you tell us what is your most prized object? so my object so one of the things we found in talking to you know we interviewed probably more than 300 people and then culled it down to the 150 in the book and one of the things we found was nobody i mean zero nobody picked an object because of its monetary value you know our our, our hearts are not accountants so everybody had objects that were really of emotional value and for me my my object falls in line there it's a it's a sign in that that was drawn with a pen by hand by me in German, and it says anywhere. And I used that sign uh, with my friend Fred while we were in college hitchhiking around East Germany. And the fact that there's this sign that says anywhere it it captures that time in our life, you know, in our in our early twenties, where it didn't matter where we were going or when we had to be there, when we had to be home. It was all about the adventure and all about the journey. And it was way before, you know, kids and a job, you know, and a mortgage and, you know, paying insurance and all those things that can kind of weigh us down. This was before things had narrowed a little bit in my life. And um, for me, that sign and that moment in time represents sort of a a North Star uh, and how I like to think about how my life used to be and hopefully how it will be once again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's so interesting what you said. Our our heart is not an accountant, I think you said. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I think about things, the the question everybody asks, or not everybody, but there's a fire. What do you go and grab? Not at all What exactly. I think. Exactly. What in here it
1: costs the most, you know? Right. Well, I mean, you know, when you, you mentioned the fire and that, that actually played into one of the reasons why we did why we did the book, because, you know, as we kind of look around and see more environmental, you know, calamities, catastrophes than than certainly any time during my life, you know, with all the hurricanes and, and, and the fires and, and some of the environmental havoc that global warming is causing. You know, it is going to make all of us a little bit more susceptible to those moments where we have to think about what's most precious to us before we leave our house. <laughs> and it's it's scary to think about that. But in a way, it's also very grounding to spend a moment kind of looking over your, your shelves and your life and your walls and think about what are the very few things in my life that in a way carry the spirit of my life? and the values and what I think are so important. And, and hopefully that's one of the things that people who read the book kind of walk away with, and, you know, that, that sort of sense of looking around their own lives.
0: And the co-author of the book, Naomi Wax, did she ever tell you what her
1: favorite object was? In fact, she did. They were blue jeans. Again, not, not, not a very <laughs> pretty mundane object but they were blue jeans that she had when she was in high school that she lost for two years. And then they sort of magically turned up and, you know, they're, they're completely in shreds like all blue jeans are, but once they had kind of resurfaced, she, she, she couldn't let them go. And she sort of says that she keeps them as a reminder not to dwell too much on the things that she's lost in her life, the things that have gone away, but really to celebrate the amazing things, you know, material and, and spiritual that she's found in her life. So in that way, the genes became a representation of an outlook of the things that she feels are important and a way to, and a way to celebrate those things.
0: So what did you learn as a result? of authoring this book, what we keep, what would you say you took away from the whole experience?
1: Well, a lot of things. One, one is that everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. I mean, you pull up to a, to a a, a, a little town you've never been to called Clay Center, Kansas. You walk into a coffee shop you've never been to you talk to the woman behind the counter, and she has an amazing story—a beautiful, moving story. You talk to a homeless man on the, you know, uh, who lives in a park. He's got an amazing story about one of the few objects in his life that he has. You talk to an astronaut, you know, who you expect to have an amazing story because they're an astronaut. But what they have, you don't expect at all. You know, it's not uh, something sciency or spacey. It's it's an instrument that they've played since the time they were a kid. And so the fact that everybody has a story, the fact that everybody was you know mostly willing to share the story and also that we as humans imbue these objects with almost an emotional life of their own, almost like a talismanic you know expression of the things that are most important to the owner. And these objects, so mundane, can really hold the big ideas, the passions, and the relationships of a person's life.
0: Wow, that's really great. But I I have to ask you one thing. We mentioned at the beginning of the interview that you're the former editor-in-chief of Life magazine. And my wife, at one point, we were going into this antique store. And she saw this Life magazine, an old copy of Life magazine. And she ran to it. And it was just like it completely and totally fixated her. And she's from Romania. And she said, that's a Romanian name that was on the cover. And she bought it. She bought the magazine and it sparked this whole thing where she wrote this piece. And, you know, Life magazine, magazines now, like, pe- people just aren't buying them as much, but a lot of people keep Life Magazines, <laughs> you know? Yes. They're beautiful. Yeah. I'm hoping you can just tell us a little bit, if you would, about what it is like to be Editor-in-Chief of the institution we call Life Magazine.
1: Um, you know, it was probably the greatest honor of my life to be able to carry on the tradition of some of the big ideas and most beautiful photographs and images of our time to be able to walk through the archives the life magazine archives and just reach in pull out a folder and find maybe it's pictures from the kennedy assassination maybe it's pictures from a photo shoot that never ran in life of the hell's angels Maybe it's photographs of Merrill Monroe that, for whatever reason, were never printed. And to be part of the images that the United States and also really the world, to be part of the 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 tradition of bringing those important images to people, like i said is is an incredible honor because a lot of times when people think about news events or cultural events they they think about it kind of as a photograph. You know, they don't think about it as a sentence. They think about it as an image. And to be someone who helps bring those images to people and bring those memories to people, you know, it's a great feeling to be able to do that. I'm so curious, who who with the Romanian name was on the cover of the Life magazine that your wife bought? I'm racking my brain going trying (laughs) to figure out who it was. It was a man named
0: Andrei Portambano. And he married the Hershey chocolate bar heiress. Wow. <laughs> and it, she is a journalist and it sent her down <laughs> this,
1: this. <laughs> a rabbit hole? Yeah.
0: And it was like she was interviewing people and writing this in depth. This Life magazine spawned this entire like 80 hour work week where she was just, you know. Just
1: <laughs> this was this was the thing <laughs> that's that's really cool yeah. um, so may I ask you what what your object would be oh my gosh uh, sorry <laughs> no you know
0: if I think about that and it's it's really really hard for me i mean I have so many albums I'm a huge music uh-huh. fan it would be tough to say, but it's just like there's there's so many albums I think about. A friend of mine, he wrote a song about his car being broken into and his albums being stolen and about the, the pain that that would cause. And when I heard that song, I thought, oh, my gosh, that's terrible. <laughs> right, right. But
1: I don't know is the short answer. Well, you know, there was a couple people that we spoke to that actually selected record albums as their as their – uh, object. And, you know, because they came across that album or listened to that band at a certain pivotal moment in their life. And I found that really interesting, especially as, as more and more of our music is kept in the cloud or digitally or on a device and, you know, record albums, uh, and to some extent books, um, and certainly newspapers aren't physical possessions anymore. They're they're more often than not in the digital world. And so, you know, the idea that he and maybe you uh, would focus on a record album. Yeah, I love that.
0: When I think about it for a moment more, though, I think it would be the pocket watch that my grandfather gave me. We shared the same initials, mm. and he had an old-fashioned pocket watch, P-E-L. And I I do think of that object a lot. So maybe it'd be that. That's great. That's really cool. So I always like to end the interviews very open-ended. I just like to give the guests the stage. For anyone who's joining us, what would you say to them? You can go anywhere you want.
1: What would I say to them about? About anything. Oh, so this really is an open stage. (laughs) Okay. Well, I guess with respect to what we're talking about, I guess I would encourage people to to really be to think about something in your life, you know, for the purposes of this of this moment, an object, and to think about why that's important to you. And putting less focus on the object itself. Think about the the relationship that it holds. And you know, did you get it from your grandfather? Did you get it from you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or your mom or, or someone who was very important to you uh, in the past. And again, not focusing so much on the object, but think about that person and why your connection to that person is so important and what that person means to you, what kind of person that was. Is it somebody that you uh, aspire to be like, someone that inspires you? And perhaps why that person remains with you as a North Star or goalpost for your life. And I think it would do all of us well to sort of not get so caught up in what's trending on Twitter or what's, you know, what's, what's, what's coming over the latest, um, you know, Instagram post or whatnot and think more about those most important relationships in our lives and why
0: well spoken well bill i know i'm not allowed to call you mr shapiro so it's bill (laughs) it is bill it's been a great pleasure to speak with you all the listeners out there you can check out facebook.com slash what we keep you can find bill shapiro on twitter it's bill underscore shapiro And he's on Instagram, at Bill Shapiro, all together, one word, at Bill Shapiro. So, Bill,
1: thank you very much. It has really been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, It's been so fun. I really appreciate it. And if I could add one more thing, sorry, I I sort of think in, in PSs once in a while. You know, the reason you and I are talking is because I got out of New York, drove a place I'd never been, Got out of the car, stopped for coffee, spoke with somebody in a town and campus. I would also say that that's a super important, that was a super important experience for me. And I would, I would kind of, I think it's a great thing for everybody to do. Kind of get out of your, get out of your regular spheres and and talk to some people who you wouldn't usually
0: talk to. Man, that's a great PS. Absolutely. All right, sir. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much. Really been a pleasure. All right. Well, until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to The Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com, and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good.